You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Well, I'm a big radio listener. I know that's kind of passe these days, but I still love to listen to the radio. And so sports talk, uh, the Horn 104.9 here in town, and uh, political talk radio if I'm really bored, and classic rock get the, uh, the prized places uh, in my heart and on my preset dial in my truck's radio. And though my tastes have changed somewhat over the years, there is one show that still is numero uno, number one at the top of my list, and it has been for a long time. It's the Paul Harvey Show. Can I get an amen on that? Anybody? anybody else? Some of y'all know who Paul Harvey is. Yeah, a few of y'all. Uh, I love that guy. I always have. He was a, a news commentator, so when his program would come on each day, it wasn't so much reporting the headlines as it was brief commentary on what was going on with the headlines of the day. But as much as I loved his regular show, there was another program, kind of a B-side program, that he would do several times a week called The Rest of the Story. Now, The Rest of the Story was amazing, and here's how it would go if you haven't heard of it. He would start off, and it was a, a brief program, five minutes long, and he would start off telling the details of a person's life, and he would only give their first name at the start. And, and without fail, the details of their life were full of in, incredible heartbreak and sorrow or coincidences or something that would make their life memorable, that had, had things turned out different, we would never would have heard of them, but as it is, everyone knows who they are. And so he would get to the end of the story after these four or five minutes, and then he would let us in on the, the real inside scoop and give us the last name of the individual And then he would end each vignette by saying, and now you know the rest of the story. You can still remember it. The text that we have today is sort of like that. We've spent the last month plus celebrating the incarnation of God Almighty in the person of Jesus Christ, God coming in the flesh. And during that time, we're careful to belabor the point that Christmas is not only about Jesus coming as a baby in a manger. There was a, a point to that. There was a telos. There was a goal to what was going on. See, the message of the cradle was always the message of the cross. They're the same. Now, looking back in history, 2,000 years, this side of Jesus' ministry, we all know this. Whether you're a Christian here today or you're not, you're just curious, you know this basic outline probably of Christianity because we have the full picture. Again, 2,000 years of church history behind us. However, it's easy to think about Jesus coming and to forget certain aspects, certain implications of what it means for us. Or we may take sort of the entire picture of who Jesus is and what he did and maximize some aspects of it, those parts of it that we like or that make us feel really, really good, and minimize those that maybe we don't like so much or that don't fit in our grid quite like we want them to. We all do this, so I think today it's helpful to sort of clear the decks this time of year And look, try to step into the shoes, get outside of our own perspective, and look through the eyes of some of the first believers in Jesus to see what they saw that day, to figure out the rest of the story of Jesus' ministry. So in this passage, we'll look at it like this today under three headings. First, we have a Savior who has a bigger agenda than anything we can imagine. We we have a Savior who divides. And finally, we have a Savior who will stop at nothing for us. Let's jump in. First of all, a Savior who has a bigger agenda than we can imagine. 
Have you ever stood outside of a hospital nursery window looking at newborn babies? Anybody ever done that? Like even if you don't have kids of your own, a few of you have probably done this. Invariably, the comments from the onlookers uh, come upon who are focused upon who the baby looks like. How, how cute they are, et cetera, except for this one time when I was in college, total side story, I actually told someone that their child was ugly. It was a terrible, awful moment. But uh, anyway, if you want the real scoop, ask me about it later, but just had to confess that. Feels so much better now. Have that on my chest 20 years. Um, anyway, so the commentary continues, though. People talk about this baby and how cute he is, how cute she is. And then the parents, one of the parents will come up. You know, dad will walk outside to greet the family who's there looking at the baby. And, and the friends will say, oh, the baby looks just like mom. Or, oh, look at how the, the baby's hands, his, his little hands are just already getting big. They look like his daddy's big hands and all these on and on and on. And the parents, the dad, usually who's the only one who's out there, beams with pride. That said, I want you to put yourself in Joseph and Mary's shoes all those years ago. Whether you're married or not, whether you have children or not, try to put yourself in their shoes. They're probably getting a lot of the same pretty baby comments that everyone else was getting from their little ones. But as they're walking through the temple on the day of Jesus' dedication that picks up in verse 22, we didn't read those first three verses, but it picks up in verse 22, they're approached by an old stranger who takes their little boy and instead of saying, oh, what a little cutie, says a whole lot more. Look again at verses 30 through 32. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Whoa, that's a lot. I mean, that's a load for young parents. And you might not think this would come as that big a news to Mary and Joseph. After all, both of them had had it revealed to them by angels who their son was. Would be, and yet look down at verse 33. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. See, even though Mary and Joseph knew that Jesus was destined to save his people from their sins, they probably had no idea of just how expansive, how far reaching this promise really was. Here's what I mean. By the time of Jesus' birth in the first century, or at the, the very, very end, the tail end, 5, 6 BC, uh, there is a sort of national perspective among the Jewish people, and this was not all of the people, but many, perhaps most of the people, tended to think in this way, all right, this Savior, this Messiah, this Rescuer has been predicted for a long, long, long time in our Scriptures. And when He comes, He will come to kick Rome out once and for all and to reestablish us as the center of the world as a people in a land of glory and power and might. You see, they tended to think about salvation in exclusively nationalistic or ethnic terms. Now, we see evidence of this sentiment all over the pages of the New Testament, both in terms of common Jewish attitudes toward people. So as we read, the New Testament authors are writing and they're recording what people are saying, particularly in the gospel. And there's this idea that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, were dogs, that they were the dregs and the scum of the earth, but that the Jews and only the Jews were God's people and God only looked with favor upon them. In fact, you see such a 
such a, a desire for many of these people to have an exclusive relationship where it would only be the kingdom of Israel and everyone else would be excluded, that at every turn in Jesus' ministry, people are seeking to turn him into a king, a ruler who could perform enough magic tricks and miracles, however they conceived of them, to somehow feed an army, to lead an army, to kick Rome out once and for all. And indeed, these attitudes and expectations had their genesis in something true, as distorted as they became. See, God did make promise after promise after promise to always be God to Abraham and his descendants after him. Examples are too numerous to catalog, but just so you'll see what I'm talking about. Listen to the words of Mary and then of Jesus' uncle, Zechariah, just one chapter back in Luke. Mary, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Zechariah, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So God's promise of salvation and restoration and redemption did include the Jewish people. So far, so good. However, and this is a big however, God's promises had never been meant for one group of privileged people, regardless of who they were. Throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, as the Old Testament continues to move forward, there are statements and there are allusions and there are outright promises that one day God's people would not be made of a particular ethnicity, but of of people from all tribes and languages and tongues and nations, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, male, female. In fact, Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, is called by God with this promise in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God tells Abraham, I will bless you so that, in order, so, in order for, so that you will be a blessing, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, the promises of God's coming kingdom were not going to be restricted to a body politic or to a particular geography but would instead be extended into human hearts. See, as people conceived of God's kingdom only in terms of a geographic region, they were thinking too small. They were thinking too small. No, God's kingdom was always going to be something that would conquer a far larger and far more difficult to conquer territory, the human soul. Simeon understood this. Look up in verse 26. Look in verse 26. Luke tells us that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The word consolation in the original language means basically what it means in English for us, to encourage or to comfort. So see, he's waiting for God to fill his promises to comfort and encourage Israel. And when he sees that fulfillment in the person, in flesh and blood, in the person of the baby Jesus, how does he conceive of it? How does he conceive of the consolation, the comfort of Israel? You have prepared salvation in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. See, Simeon knew the only way that God could fulfill his promises to Israel was for all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile alike, to believe in the salvation that God had sent. It was not about ethnicity. It was about faith. So what's the point for us? We're far removed from that seemingly. So what's the point? Well, There are a lot of implications, but let me mention just a couple. The first is this. God is more loving and more gracious than you think he is. Let me say that again. God is more loving and he's more gracious than you think he is. 
no matter what your thoughts are about him right now, no matter how long you have been a Christian, if you're a Christian at all, or if this is the first time you've ever walked into church, no matter what your preconceptions are, he's more gracious and more loving than you think. Certainly, God hates sin to the nth degree and will punish it to the nth degree. He's not light on sin, just the opposite. He's completely just. And no, not everyone receives God's saving grace just by virtue of breathing. But Scripture makes it so clear and so plain on practically every page that God is a God whose grace is explosive and expansive in a way that we would never draw it up, in a way that none of us would ever conceive of, and that should give you hope. It does not matter who you are. It does not matter what you've done. It does not matter where you're coming from. You run to Jesus, put your trust in Him, and He will embrace you in a way that you cannot conceive of now. If you're not a follower of Jesus here today, please hear this. Please hear this. There is a place for you at the table, and the Father is calling you. He's inviting you. If you don't hear anything else today, hear that. He, he wants you at the table. He wants you at the party. He wants you at the feast. He's more gracious and more loving than you think he is. But if you're a Christian today and you've given up hope that somebody you love will ever come to know Jesus or you think you've blown it too bad this week to come to this table and to sing these hymns that we've been singing, you don't give up hope either because he loves you more than you think he does. Don't stop praying and loving and sharing with other people that you love that you want to know Jesus when you get the chance. Don't stop singing those hymns. Don't stop belting those things out. Don't stop approaching God with boldness, knowing that he loves you and he is quick to forgive, quick to show mercy and gracious in all his ways. Don't, please don't forget that. Don't forget that, particularly as, as Christians who at, at this church, and I love this about Providence, love to wrestle with God's word and study theology and study doctrine. Don't forget that profound truth that infuses everything else that we talk about. The second implication is this. Life isn't about you, and it's not about people like you. It's not about me either. Do you see that in the text? The Jews thought that the world revolved around them. Yeah, not all of them, but as a whole, they thought the world revolved around them. Now listen, the gospel, the promise of God sending a redeemer and a deliverer, the gospel was certainly for them, but it was not about them. In the same way that it's for us, but it's not about us. And beloved, we are part of a story that is so much bigger than we are. And that one fact should humble us and it should bring us tremendous peace because we don't have to bear the burden of being the center of the universe. You're not. And neither am I. And that should make us want to jump up and shout hallelujah. Because it's not about us. Because we serve a God who is so much more glorious, so much better than we can imagine. But second, let's look at a Savior who divides. A Savior who divides. As uplifting as Simeon's words were to this young couple in the preceding verses, they come with this ominous message as well, don't they? You probably heard that during the reading. This precious little boy would not only be the salvation of his people, but he was destined to be a source of great division, soul-searching, strife, and pain as well. Even to his own mom, Mary. He would be the fork in the road for everyone that he would ever encounter and ever meet. No one could meet or could leave unchanged after meeting him for better or worse. He was and remains the great tipping point of the human heart and human history. 
Probably the best way I can illustrate this, because it does sound odd. Think about it. Uh, during this season, you hear a verse from the book of Isaiah often, Isaiah 9, 6, where this prophecy of the coming Messiah, he's called the prince of what? It's called the prince of peace. So how could this prince of peace also be someone whose very presence could cause a riot? How could that be the case? Probably the best illustration of this that I've heard, or the best explanation of this I've heard, comes from a a writer named Donald Miller. Uh, Several years ago, wrote a, a popular book called Blue Light Jazz. And this illustration helped me get my mind around this. Again, it's merely an analogy and illustration, uh, but it does help get us where we need to be, I think. Uh, he, was, he talked about the, the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the South in the 1960s. And everywhere that King would go, he was there preaching a message of peace. He didn't come in swinging a baseball bat. He didn't come in calling for violence. And yet, everywhere he went, what happened? Riots broke out. Fights broke out. Because the message that he was bringing, his very countenance, his very demeanor, and the words he spoke were enough to ignite this powder keg because they were an indictment upon everything the surrounding culture was saying. Again, only an analogy, only an illustration, but I think helpful. If you step back and look at Jesus' earthly ministry, it's clear how he proved to be this wedge in people's lives that Simeon had promised. With few exceptions, his life seems to be one example of this after another. Think back to his birth and early childhood. The shepherds and the magi find out that the Messiah has been born and who he is. What do they do? They run to worship. Herod finds out the Messiah has been born and who he is. What does he do? He plots to kill all the babies in Bethlehem to snuff out a perceived rival. He begins his public ministry and the down and out flock to him while the religious authorities reject him. Those who knew they had no hope were happy to lay their lives down for him, while those who thought that he had nothing to offer tried to figure out ways to kill him. Some people listened to his message and embraced it. Some went away sad. Some needed a little more time to think. Some were enraged. But nobody ignored him, and nobody forgot him. With Jesus, the battle lines were clearly drawn. People were either for him or against him, but no one got to declare neutrality. Now, let's think for a moment about Jesus' ministry. No one else in human history has made such absolute, all-encompassing claims upon your life and upon mine. That goes for you whether you are a Christian or not. No one else has ever seen into the hearts of people so clearly. No one else has ever presented such a high moral standard or so radically critiqued the status quo of rote religion. No one has ever loved so extravagantly or talked about God and knowing him in such intimate, personal terms. In other words, Jesus was enough and is enough to offend everybody. In his classic work, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton writes a, a chapter entitled The Paradoxes of Christianity in which he catalogs critiques of the church, of the faith, and of Jesus himself down through the centuries and how these critiques uh, actually contradict one another at numerous places, at various points. But then he offers a different spin, one which I think gets us where we need to be in considering why Jesus is such a stumbling block. Listen to this. Suppose we heard an unknown man spoken of by many men. Suppose we were puzzled to hear that some men said he was too tall and some too short. Some objected to his fatness 
Some lamented his leanness. Some thought him too dark and some too fair. One explanation would be that he might be an odd shape. But there is another explanation. He might be the right shape. Outrageously tall men might feel him to be short. Very short men might feel him to be tall. Old bucks who are growing stout might consider him insufficiently filled out. Old bows who are growing thin might feel that he had expanded beyond the narrow lines of elegance. Perhaps Swedes, who have pale hair like toe, called him a dark man, while Negroes considered him distinctly blonde. Perhaps, in short, this extraordinary thing is really the ordinary thing, or at least the normal thing, the center. You see, Jesus came not to be measured or critiqued by us like a specimen in a jar under a microscope, but instead to do the critiquing. That's what Isaiah actually talks about in another place. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, a verse Jesus actually refers to in his ministry and the later New Testament writers do as well. It's a verse that says this, Behold, this is God talking, Behold, I am laying a stone in Zion. Zion just being a catch-all phrase for God's kingdom, his people specifically in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. Behold, I'm laying a stone in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You see, God sent his son, he sent Jesus to be that very stumbling block. But here's the thing, that offense, that offense that he causes, that has to come. Not only by necessity of the message itself, but by the nature of his mission. You see, if Jesus doesn't critique our lives, our thoughts, our words, and our actions, all of us, if he doesn't critique us, then we go on in blissful ignorance thinking that everything is okay in our lives. We go on thinking that nothing needs to change, that nothing needs to be made different, that nothing needs to be saved, rescued, or redeemed. You see, we think that we don't really need to trust him at all because we think we have it all together. And so we have to be shown reality. It's like this. I love to cook. It's one of my great passions in life. I mean, I wake up in the morning thinking about all three meals of the day and thinking about what I'm going to try to cook later in the day, and especially on the weekends when my grill is going practically the entire time. And sometimes it is the greatest triumph in the world, and I want to sing songs about it while I'm eating, and I've got grease going down my arms, and it's all over my face, and it's just wonderful. But then there are times, like anybody else that cooks, there are times it is an abject disaster, and it is so bad that it's hardly edible. During those times, Erica, my wife, graciously lets me know, usually, that I have failed. (laughs) She's nice about it. She's kind about it. But she does let me know, Brian, this is not quite up to snuff. And I usually get very mad and very offended, no matter how nice she is about it. That makes absolutely no sense, though, right? My response makes no sense. Because what she is saying to me, she's saying to me, in love to help make me a better cook. See, nothing can be changed. Nothing can be rectified as long as I think things are just fine. But if, if I'm honest with myself, with my own taste buds, and I listen to what Erica says and what her taste buds say, that mirror shows me the truth, despite what I hope might be true. And at that point, there is a way out because I know something's wrong and it's got to be changed. And of course, that's sort of a silly illustration, but it does, it does somewhat illustrate 
What Jesus is doing, every time he critiques our lives, his life, his ministry, his words are mirrors that make us see ourselves clearly. Not so we can engage in some sort of self-improvement project, but so that we can learn that he is the one who is the redeemer and the savior and the rescuer, not us. That's why he does this. Again, he acts as a stumbling block in one way or another to everyone that he encounters. And when we take that into account, we can say, in short, that the gospel, his message, he is a savior, does indeed divide. And that has some practical upshots for you and I today. The first one deals with personal relationships. And I'll be brief on these, but I do want you to to think about this, because it'll happen to you if it hasn't before. If you're someone that follows Jesus at some point, you probably are going to have some relational strife with friends or family who don't. I have a family member I'm real close to. His name is John. And I, I knew John uh, long before he married into our family. I'm from a real small town, so everyone knows each other. And John was a wild man. And this dude was crazy. I could tell you stories that would make all of us blush about John. And he had a group of friends around him who had all run together since they were in elementary school, and all of them were the same way. And I loved hanging around these guys when I was a younger fella, and, and they were just the life of the party. They were always lots of fun, lots of things they were doing they shouldn't have been doing. But John, when he was about 30 years old, came to know Jesus through the witness of another family member of mine. And when that happened... And this doesn't always happen with people. Sometimes your life doesn't experience this dramatic moral shift before you become a Christian to after you become a Christian. Your external morality may be roughly the same if you're a nice person uh, when you get converted. But John was not. And so when when he comes to know Jesus, his life does this 180. Everything starts to change. And as that happens, even though John remained the kindest, most gracious, most faithful friend, a lot of his friends started to kind of peel off. They didn't want anything to do with John anymore. And to this day, all those years later, he still pays the price for for not doing anything mean or ostentatious in a way that would fly in the face of his friends in a way where he would try to make them feel bad or that he would try to be holier than that. It was nothing like that. He was just following Jesus. And they weren't, and, and their paths sort of divided. So it's important that you do think about that. Again, not so that you can somehow look forward to it as a martyr, Make yourself feel good because, oh, I've lost all these friends because I followed Jesus and that's got to give me special bonus points with God. Not that. Just so that you'll know when those things happen, it is normal. God knows about it. And, and it's amazing, though, in those times how he often works redemption in those relationships and brings people to Jesus in unusual ways. So I say that just to give you hope and to give you kind of a dose of reality. The other implication is this. It plows a little bit closer to the corn. gets a little closer to our own hearts. It's about your own heart and mine. Because Jesus wants my entire life and my entire heart. Guess what he's going to do? As long as I'm breathing, he's going to keep critiquing me. He's going to keep pointing out things that need to be changed. He's going to see that little scab and he's going to pick at it. And he's going to continue through various ways, through other Christians, through his word, through circumstance, to show me things that need to change. And he's going to do that for you as well. And it's going to be painful, and it's going to be hard, and you're going to get mad. And at times, you're going to be tempted to think that God doesn't love you at all, that he is instead someone who just likes to torture you. As Mother Teresa once said, God, you would have a lot more friends if you weren't so tough on the ones you already have. But see... That's, that's not the case at all. 
when those things happen, when he critiques our lives, let's not despair. When he points out the sin in our hearts, don't despair. Rejoice that he loves you that much. It's like I had a football coach one time who said, Brian, do not be scared when I'm screaming at you in practice. You should get nervous when I stop screaming at you in practice because it means I don't care. Same thing goes for us. He's going to keep doing that. He's going to keep critiquing our hearts until he takes us home. And that's hope. He's restoring us a bit at a time. Last, let's look briefly, though, at a Savior who will stop at nothing for us. After Simeon's amazing comments, this elderly prophetess by the name of Anna strolls up and joins in the rejoicing about the arrival of this baby that she knew was the Messiah. Look at the end of verse 38. She begins to speak of him, that is Jesus, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. Now, that word redemption is common parlance throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. simply means rescue or to be purchased out of captivity. And man, the Jews knew a lot about that word, at least on some level, because they were constantly under the threat or under the boot of a foreign power. And yet she knew, she knew that it was bigger than that. You see, this idea of redemption denotes joy, peace, wholeness, shalom, to borrow a biblical term that we actually sang just a few moments ago. And Anna knows that this is what the Messiah was destined to bring, not just political wholeness, not just fullness in some temporal sense, but something much, much, much deeper. And this is where Anna's words and actions here forge the link to what we discussed just a moment ago. You see, Simeon speaks of the division that Jesus would bring. Anna looks at those same events, and she sees them in terms of salvation and hope. So how does this happen? Well, Isaiah 28, 16, the verse that I read to you just a few moments ago, actually says more than I originally quoted. In its entirety, it says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see, this redemption is ultimately rooted in trust. Trust that this stone that God would send, both in who he is and what he does, would be enough to actually bring this full-blown redemption we had talked about. And what he does, how he does it, is bigger than anything we could have dreamed up on our own. John Ortberg captures this wonderfully in his book, God is Closer Than You Think. Listen to this. Father Damien was a priest who became famous for his willingness to serve lepers. He moved, moved to Kalawao, a village on the island of Molokai in Hawaii that had been quarantined to serve as a leper colony. For 16 years, he lived in their midst. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds, embraced the bodies no one else would touch, preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left alone. He organized schools, bands, and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. He built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when they died, they could be buried with dignity. Slowly, it was said, Kalawao became a place to live rather than a place to die for Father Damien offered hope. Father Damien was not careful about keeping his distance. He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the poi bowl along with his patients. He shared his pipe. He did not always wash his hands after bandaging open sores. He got close. For this, the people loved him. Then one day, 
he stood up and began his sermon with these two words. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping them. Now he was one of them. From this day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin. First, he had chosen to live as they lived. Now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. One day, God came to earth and began his message. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping us. Now he was one of us. Now he was in our skin. Now we were in it together. Do you see it? That's why we've been celebrating so wildly over this last month, the incarnation. A big word that simply means that God took on flesh and became one of us. Jesus, both fully man and fully God for all eternity. Whether this is the first time you've ever heard that claim or the thousandth, I want you to really, really consider what it means. This incredible claim is absolutely unique to Christianity, and it's so glorious, so astonishing a truth that we could never plumb its depths adequately, and we will spend eternity doing that. But let me just mention a couple of things. Let me see if I can illustrate what this would mean in your life if you actually got that truth, if you actually believed it, that you were not alone that the Savior actually came and God, as Isaiah the prophet says, is with us. Earlier this week, I turned on the television one morning and I saw the story about a 15-year-old Canadian young man named Jonathan Petrie, known in his hometown as the Butterfly Boy. Jonathan has an illness called epidermolysis bullosa, EB for short. This illness I was unfamiliar with, never had heard of it, uh, but I'll never forget it. I can tell you that. Watching the show uh, put images in my mind I will never forget. It's a boy, 15 years old, 4 feet 7 inches tall, weighs 60 pounds, and his body covered in what looks like third-degree burns, though they're not burns. See, the reason he's called Butterfly Boy and all the children who have this are called butterfly children is because their skin is so fragile, so delicate, it's said to be like a butterfly's wing. And so that anything Jonathan ever touches causes huge blisters and huge sores to open up on his body. And so he's covered every day of his life. He's covered underneath his clothes from his neck to his feet, to the tips of his, what's left of his toes, which are almost completely gone, as are his fingers. He's covered in bandages. And every other day, around bath time, five o'clock at night or so, his mom walks him into the bathroom where he takes off all of his clothes, where he just has bandages, looks like a mummy. He lays down in a bath of water to loosen up the bandages just a bit. As those are loosened up, she begins the process of removing each bandage that's caught, that's stuck on the bloody sores that had come up over the previous 48 hours. After those bandages were removed, she puts medicine on the wounds and goes to the business of rebandaging him. It's a three-hour process, three-and-a-half-hour process every other night. 
and has been this way for years and will be until the day he dies. Jonathan has virtually no friends at school. He can't be around other students because if someone runs into him in the hallway, game over. And so he spends most of his days in a 9 by 11 room at his school with nothing but his teaching assistant. This has been his life since the day he was born. It'll be his life, barring a miracle, until the day he dies. Life expectancy for these kids is around 25 years. But Jonathan experienced an incredible turning point in his life. Here's what happened. As he would sit each day and ponder his aloneness. Even though his mom is with him and loves him, she doesn't understand because she doesn't suffer from the same illness. As he would sit and ponder his aloneness, things continued to get worse and worse and worse for him emotionally and mentally until he got the chance a couple of years ago to go to a conference in Canada for children with EB. And when he got there, he saw something extraordinary. And in his own words, he just said it like this. I saw that I was not alone. And at that moment, everything changed for him. He went from being someone who lived in in a state of understandable victimhood to being someone whose life goal came to what was to encourage and educate other people about EB to encourage those who had it to help family and friends understand how they could be a blessing and a benefit to those in the EB community. And it's incredible what he has done over just a couple of short years. The guy's been on national TV in Canada and here in the States several times sharing this message. And how did it happen? Through the simple realization that he was not alone. Beloved, that's what the incarnation screams at us. That we are not alone. Let me bring it back down to sort of a micro level because admittedly that's sort of a dramatic story that most of us will probably not confront firsthand. But here's one that you probably have or probably will. As Todd said, uh, we're planting St. Patrick Church up in Cedar Park and uh, started our Bible study back in November. And, and during those, these few weeks, it's been neat to watch everyone get to know one another and started to share some pretty intense prayer requests, things that are, are going on in a lot of people's lives that are very difficult and a lot of things of a medical nature. Uh, folks dealing with some pretty significant medical issues. And uh, one night, a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the people in our group called and said, hey, could y'all just come over to the house and pray with us because of just some of the medical things that their family was dealing with. So we went over, prayed with the family, and it was incredible to see as, as we talked, as we prayed, as we processed the gospel together, th- this one thing that kept bringing hope and healing to to this person and kind of smiles to all of our faces as we thought about it was this, that this person in their broken body state is not alone. Not just because we, other Christians, other friends were with them and had experienced physical brokenness too, but because we have a Savior who has done the same. We have a Savior who's experienced physical brokenness in ways that we can't imagine emotional brokenness in ways we can't imagine. See, we have a God who knows what it's like to live and to suffer in a real human body, and that brings such incredible comfort and peace when you really get it. See, while every other religion says that God is either too aloof or that created matter is simply too evil, 
Or that God, out of respect, they might say that God is just so holy that he could never have anything to do with creation. Why all of those things say, all those faiths would say that God is far, that he's removed from creation, or that he's in no meaningful way different from it so that he can't really help his creation. Christianity says, no, no. The gospel says that God leaped in to our skin. Listen to me, no matter what you're going through, no matter where you are in life, He is with you. You are not alone. If you hope in Jesus, you can know that that the God who created this entire world is at your very side. He knows your tears firsthand. He shed his own. Every bruise, every wound, he's experienced to an even greater degree. As one writer has said, Christians are the only people who can say, our God has scars, and he has them for you, and he has them for me. See, not only did he become one of us, but he took our sin. That's the message of the gospel, that because God is holy and he always does what's right, he promises to punish sin. But instead of punishing us, he would rather, he would rather punish his own son, Jesus, for what we deserve. So that Jesus came as a substitute, so that anyone who trusts in him can know that he came and lived in their place and died in their place and was raised again for them and has ascended and at the right hand of God even now praying for you, interceding for you as your, as your priest, as your elder brother, as someone who is closer to you than your very own heart. I can't, my, my words are cheap at this point. But that's what he came to do. That's why he came. He stopped at nothing to rescue people like you and me. But the question is, how will we respond? Will we get bitter and angry and ignore him? Because we don't like what he says. Lots of people have done that. We've all done that in our own lives at one time or another. Or will we accept what he tells us is truth and turn away from the lies that we all like to believe and embrace him? He's telling us, he's telling us, put our hope in him and our own rest of the story will one day be more glorious than anything that we can imagine. That's the hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.